Well, good morning. I, I hope that everybody has uh, survived uh, yesterday, college football. I feel safe in saying that probably most of us had at least one of our teams lose. I had several, but, that, but that's okay. We gathered this morning to worship and to spend some time in, in the Word. In fact, if you want, you can turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Just kidding. If you were here last week, you know we're not quite done with 1 Timothy 2. And one thing that we do not do around here is skip verses, no matter how much I may want to. We are in a study of 1 Timothy, and we arrive at a very challenging text. Perhaps not difficult to understand, but difficult to accept. And so many would like to skip it, to change it, to rewrite it, to ignore it, or to reinterpret it. Consider what some have said about this passage and the issue that it addresses. William Mounts says in his commentary on 1 Timothy, this is the most discussed passage in the pastoral epistles. There's three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. The most pas- discussed passage. Interpretations range from seeing Paul as a liberator and champion of women's rights to dismissing Paul as wrong and irrelevant in today's culture. Whoa. To that end, George Bernard Shaw, because of this passage called Paul the eternal enemy of women. Alexander Strout writes, if Ephesians 5 is the crowning passage on Christian marriage, then 1 Timothy 2 is the crowning passage for gender roles in the local church family. 1 Timothy 2 is a strategic battleground. Never thought of a passage being a strategic battleground, but we're going to fight over it in the gender controversy. Every word, phrase, and sentence has been disputed. John Stott says, these are probably the most controversial verses, especially the ones we're at, 11 to 15, in the pastoral letters. Several note unsuccessful attempts have been made, exegetical and linguistic, to soften the apparent harshness of these apostolic instructions by limiting their application. David Platt It goes even further. 1 Timothy 2 represents one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? This is going to be fun. Pastor Philip Ryken writes, There is the danger of letting culture overrule Scripture. Because to the postmodern ear, 1 Timothy 2 sounds like gender discrimination. I, I, I could go on and on. I don't suppose that there is any single passage I have read more about. I counted. And including my Bible, I have 19 books in my office right now, which I have consulted. I have studied this text before. I have been reading about it for weeks. I have labored over it. And you say, well, well, why? Oh, I think you'll see why in just a minute. Entire books have been written on this topic. There are other issues which incite the passion and ire of people. I don't know any other issue, uh, perhaps, that incites more passion and ire. Entire denominations have divided on this issue. I have dear, dear friends whom I deeply love and respect who disagree with me on this passage. I want you to know that I approach it with deep humility today. 
The truth is I have not looked forward to it, not because I do not love God's Word, I do, not because I am fearful to preach God's Word, I am not, but I don't ever want to sound arrogant or condescending or chauvinistic. I don't ever want to sound less than loving and, and humble. Well, why don't we just go ahead and read the text so you can join me in my trepidation. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Way to throw her under the bus, Paul. But, 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 but that's okay. Women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So there you go. That's certainly, I mean, that certainly can't mean what it says, right? Got to come up with something different. And so as a result, there are really two basic ways to approach this text They are called the egalitarian and the complementarian approaches. Let me me define those for you. An egalitarian from the Christians for Biblical Equality website says that egalitarians, quote, affirm and promote that all believers without regard to gender, ethnicity, or class must exercise their God-given gifts. And we all agree up to that point with equal authority and equal responsibility in church home, and world. Hmm. Kind of curious as to how that squares. One of my 19 books sums it up. There are no distinctions with the egalitarians between the role of men and women in ministry. All functions and positions in church ministry are equally open to both genders. Conversely, a complementarian from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood website reads, quote, men and women are complementary, possessing equal dignity and worth as the image of God, we all agree, and called to different roles that each glorify God. Hmm, is that right? And then quoting the aforementioned book, on the other side are those who see the biblical teaching of a distinction in roles between men and women in the church or in the home, for that matter, they write, who are no, he writes, who are known as complementarians. So, it all boils down to this. Egalitarians say men and women can serve in any way in the church. There, is to be, there are to be no gender distinctions. So, they say women can serve as pastors and elders, and they can teach in this the gathered assembly. Complementarians say that while men and women are equally created in the image of God and have been equally gifted, that is true, they nonetheless serve within God's design complementary complementary roles and functions. Perhaps it would be of interest to you to know the chief or at least the most well-known proponents of each position because I want you to understand that it is strongly divided. And I want to say at this point that I do not see this except that it is a command in Scripture as necessarily a moral issue, okay? On the egalitarian side, you have Rebecca Groteis, wife of Doug Groteis, who I have personally met. Uh, 
professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. Gordon Fee, distinguished New Testament professor and author of several books and commentaries in my library. Walt Kaiser, another professor from whom I have greatly benefited. I, Howard Marshall, a great uh, writer of commentaries and apologist. Richard and Catherine Kroger, Ada Spencer, Philip Towner, N.T. Wright, and to some degree, John Stott, because, well, he can't make up his mind. Now, while some or perhaps all of those names may be unfamiliar to you, trust me when I say these are theological heavy hitters. I mean, I quote from Stott all the time, read everything he's written. On the complementarian side, you have such people as Pastor John Piper, P- Professor Wayne Grudem, Pastor and Professor right from right here in North Carolina, George W. Knight, Prof- Professor Doug Moo, Professor D.A. Carson, Tim Keller, Alexander Strauch, A.J. Kostenberger, and to some degree, because he can't make up his mind, John R.W. Stott. That is an equally strong list. Well, well, perhaps a listing of denominations might be helpful because after you listen to the sermon today, you may want to pick another church. On the egalitarian side, you have the American Baptists, the Assemblies of God, the Episcopal Church in the USA, and also the Anglicans, the United Methodists, the Presbyterian Church in the USA, PCUSA, not to be confused with PCA, and the Evangelical Lutheran Churches of America ELCA. On the complementarian side, you have the Southern Baptists, the General Association of Rebellious, ba- I mean, Regular Baptists. You have the, uh, no, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, of which we are uh, a part, the Lutheran Churches, Missouri Synod, and the Evangelical Free Church in America. I share all of that with you so that you can know that there are deep divisions over this text. And at the outset, let me tell you, let me just go ahead and put my cards on the table um, and let you know that I follow the historic approach which has been held for most of church history largely until the end of the 20th century. That is, I follow the complementarian position, complementarian position, okay? There was a meeting that was held in 1987. They called a bunch of scholars together. They didn't call me. I was a little disappointed. But they met in Danvers, Massachusetts, and they wrote a statement that's called the Danvers Statement. I have made copies. It's on the back table. If you'd like to grab one on the way out, feel free to do so. It explains this complementarian position. Now, I know that some call this the traditional or the patriarchal position or more unkindly, the misogynistic position, which means I hate women. I do not let me be very clear. I do not hate women. There's one book on the egalitarian side that is entitled, Are Women Fully Human? I take offense to that. Time does not permit. It would take weeks to deal with the egalitarian position in all of their arguments. One of those books that I showed you earlier does just that. It deals with all uh, with the refutations of the uh, of the egalitarian arguments however in the interest of academic fairness let me summarize their handling of this text with the following thoughts okay first some extreme egalitarians suggest that indeed Paul was just flat wrong that, yeah, that he was a product of his patriarchal society, and we have now grown in our understanding of gender equality. And what he wrote here then is to be dismissed. Of course, 
as evangelicals who believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, that is unacceptable. That's untenable. We can't, we can't go with that one. Other, secondly, other egalitarians say the pastoral epistles to include First Timothy were not written by Paul, but by a pseudonymous writer, that is someone who took the name of Paul after Paul. And therefore, while uh, helpful at times, this writer inaccurately reflects Paul's teaching and should therefore then at times be rejected. I'm not going to refute, again, each of these positions. I'm simply pointing them out to you to, to know that they have arguments um, but I did deal with this idea of pseudonymity and in the introduction of these books. It's on the podcast if you want to go listen to some scintillating uh, conversation. All conservative evangelical scholars accept Pauline authorship of these letters. Third, now we get to the, a little bit more on meat of the matter. Third, some suggest that we need to take a closer look at the language or the grammar of 1 Timothy chapter 2. They suggest that the translations that we have are lacking or insufficient. And so, as it was suggested uh, earlier, every word, every phrase, and every sentence has been questioned and debated. Let me give you some of the very few, uh, let me give you, excuse me, a very few of the very many examples. When Paul says, I do not allow, could be translated permit. I do not permit a woman to teach. He's just saying, hey, this is what I think. I'm just expressing my opinion. I don't prefer it. I wish you wouldn't do it, but hey, do whatever you want. Others point out the Greek tense in the I do not permit. I mean, they say it means I do not allow at this time, meaning it is only applied in the Ephesian church and not today. Let me do just address that one because it's kind of interesting. Paul wrote 13 letters which contain 2,800, 2,800 verbs, half of them, 1,400, are written in this tense. If that is true, then we've got to dismiss half of Paul's letters. Can't do that. Others say the Greek word, this is a big one, this is a big one, the, the Greek word for exercise authority, found only here in the New Testament, should be better translated exercise domineering authority, and as long as women are humble and gentle, not dominating others, especially men, then they can teach. There is a refutation of that one, very clear, but I'm not going to go into it. Fourth, going beyond the grammar and the Greek text, many point to the circumstances or the culture at Ephesus. So, so, they say, since we know that the big challenge was false teaching, when Paul says, I do not permit, permit a woman to teach, it means I don't want them to teach heresy. Or they, uh, they notice that Paul says, I want a woman to learn because at this time women were uneducated, so they shouldn't teach until they were educated. Or um, uh, Ephesus was the place of the Artemis and Isis cults where women were unduly elevated or they point to a Roman um, women's lib movement that was taking place at this time, and therefore Paul is simply trying to write the imbalance. Or there was an early Gnostic teaching that said that man came from woman, and the, uh, and the Genesis account clearly teaches the other way, that woman came from man, and so Paul's just fixing that. Or, and on and on and on it goes. Now, the Bible is a book written within a certain time and culture. And as much as possible, we should try to ascertain the circumstances of the original text. But listen very 
carefully to me. We should not use the original circumstances to suggest the text does not apply to us today. If we did that, every letter would not apply to us today. And this is what many try to do. Again, I'm not going to try and refute all of the arguments other than to say that scholars much smarter than I have. And as I've done lots of reading, lots of reading, it seems to me that what happens, what has happened through the last few decades is something like this. Well, we don't like what the text seems to say, so it, it can't be what the text actually says, so let's suggest an alternate understanding. How about this one? And then they suggest some grammatical reason and the Greek scholars say, no, that actually won't work grammatically. And then they go, well, how about this one? And they, how about culture? And they say, no, that's not really historically accurate. And then they go, well, how about this one? Nope, that won't work either. And one by one, as egalitarians, I want to say this very gently, have desperately tried to dismiss the teaching of the text. Their arguments fall ultimately short. So, I'm going to try to, t to tell you my understanding of the text, and I, I, I will tell you that I am not alone. I'm simply going to try and teach the passage as it appears and not try to explain it away because it is counter-cultural. Don't know if you've noticed that much of Christianity is counter-cultural. And let me also say this. The Scripture is abundantly clear, and I'm going to try not to say those words clear and obvious and assume, because and, that sounds so condescending toward the other position, and I don't want to appear that way, but I will say that the Scripture is abundantly clear that men and women were equally and fully created in the image of God. The Scripture is abundantly clear that men and women have been equally gifted to serve in the church, that they both, men and women, share in the salvation that is made possible by the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we share that equally, and that's what Paul means in Galatians chapter 3, which honestly is the egalitarian verse. He says there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is true as it relates to our salvation. We are all equally saved in the context. Let me sum up my position this way. The New Testament um, teaches that, that, that God has structured the home in certain functional ways. Uh, for example, Paul records in many of his letters what are called the household code. For example, in Ephesians, Colossians, we looked at those, which say this, husbands lovingly lead, wives uh, respectfully submit. That sounds a little countercultural. And children obey with honor. That's definitely countercultural. I, I, I know this, but the husband's leadership, and every time we went through that, I said it over and over again. If you didn't hear it now, hear it, now, hear it then, hear it now. This has nothing to do with inferiority and superiority. It has everything to do with functional structure. And God has designed, I believe, male and female genders to be suited to their respective responsibilities. So, so, God says, men, I want you to lovingly lead your, in your home. So also, in the church, 
what Paul calls God's home, the household of God. Men, I want you to lovingly and graciously lead. God has set up function within the church, and He expects godly and qualified men to lovingly lead. You see, Paul is going to go on from this passage in chapter 3, which is the most unfortunate chapter division in the Bible, but he's going to go on and talk about the qualifications of elders in the church, and we will see over the next couple of weeks there to be godly men. So I do not want to unnecessarily offend, nor do I want to shy away from the truth of this text. And I want you to hear me when I say I I do this with as much love and humility as I can. And if if at any point it it appears less than loving or gracious or humble, I am sorry. I really am. So let's all with all of that, with all of that as intro, let's quickly look at the text. Uh, you, you see, we're, we're going to look at verses 11 to 14 this week, even though I got lots of information, and so I'm talking really, really fast to get it all done today because I don't want to do this for two weeks. So here's the outline: how women learn in the gathered assembly, how women act in the gathered assembly. I could phrase that negatively, actually, as Paul does, how a woman does not act, is trying to be positive here, the biblical basis for the teaching, and then as he throws women under the bus, uh, the hope that is offered to women. Again, I know that's four points. We'll work through them very quickly. Now, remember that Paul has told us in chapter 3 the purpose for writing this letter is so that we would know how to conduct ourselves in the church. And so, he started in chapter 1, telling Timothy, I want you to deal with false teachers. Then he turns uh, to the church gathered in chapters 2 and 3. You see, apparently, okay, we're going to look at what was going on then. That's fine. Apparently, these false teachers had disrupted the worship gatherings of the church. So, Paul started in chapter 2 saying, I want the church not be a place of fighting, dissension and argument and fruitless disguise. I don't want the church to be that way. I want to be a place of prayer. I want you to pray for all people, namely that people would be saved. Pray that people come to know, understand they're sinners and they need a Savior to represent them, to, to mediate between them and God. And we have such a Savior. We have such a mediator. His name is Jesus. You see, He came to die on a cross for His people and their sins. So pray church, I want you to pray for people to be saved. And we have been doing that. And we did that last couple of weeks. And I shared last week that a friend of ours, and I won't mention his name since we're still recording, a friend of ours in the Middle East shared how that 30 people had come to faith in Jesus Christ, wanted to be baptized, and 23 of them were from the Muslim faith. And I shared that with you last Sunday morning. And then I got a text that afternoon that said, He preached last Sunday morning while I'm talking about him in a church in the Middle East, and 50 more came to faith in Christ. That's good news. We're praying for people to be saved. I hope you are. And men, I want you to pray without fighting. 
See, apparently the worship gatherings of the church had degenerated in debates and discussions. Paul says, stop doing that. And then he turns his attention to the women. By the way, while I'm on it, I want, I want men to stop fighting, and I want, I want women to dress appropriately, modestly, and discreetly so that you're not a distraction in the church. Instead, I want you to dress with good works. If you weren't here last week, we learned a very important lesson. Listen to me, ladies. In order to be godly women, what matters is not good looks, but good works. I like that. Next, he makes a subtle shift from disruption to leadership, although those two are also interrelated. You see, he says, I want men to pray and stop fighting. I want women to stop disrupting by dressing appropriately, okay? And and I I want you to stop disrupting by not trying to teach and lead. We we know that much of the problem at the church at Ephesus had come from poor leadership, so now he's going to go on and talk about good leadership. He's going to talk about leadership qualities over the next couple of weeks, but he actually starts with women. He expects a woman to learn uh, in the gathered assembly. Would, Would you please notice that? He expected a woman to learn. I expect a woman to receive instruction. You see, while it is true that there were some highly educated women in Ephesus at this time, women learning was not a high value, okay? Talk about being countercultural. Paul was being countercultural. I want women to learn. Within Judaism, man, it was terrible. There was actually a rabbi who said it would be better to burn the Bible than teach it to women. Paul said, no, I, I, I want women to learn. Uh, but the focus is not on the fact, on the fact that women should learn as followers of Christ, but the focus is on how they learn. Now, why then does Paul instruct them to learn quietly and with entire or full submission? Well, it seems that they were not doing that. There are indications as you read through the book that women particularly had fallen prey to the false teachers and were perhaps disrupting the worship gatherings with those teachings. We're going to see that. I'm not going to read you all those verses, but as we make our way through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it's going to be clear. This seemed to be a problem. So Paul says, ladies, I want you to learn quietly and in full submission. So, okay, what do those words mean? Well, let's start with quietly. Does that mean, as some have taught, that a woman cannot open her mouth, that she is to be silent from the moment she walks in those doors. No. 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 The word for quiet is used in verse 2 of this chapter, where we see that we are to pray for our governing authorities so that we can lead tranquil and quiet, same word, quiet lives. It doesn't mean that we're silent. In fact, we pray for tranquility so that we live in a place that we can open our mouths and share the gospel, this, this speaks of an attitude of appropriate gentleness and peace, of a quiet, think quiet spirit. Apparently, they were not doing that. What about this full submission? Full submission. You should know that that word, that's, that's the noun form of the word that Paul uses over and over in that household code to tell women to submit. That's the verb. Submit to your husbands. Now he uses the noun form, submit. Well, to whom does she submit? Does the 
Woman, submit to every man in the church? Again, the answer is no. The context seems to demand that she submit to governing authority in the church to the elders whose job it is to teach. Now listen, will you please listen to me? This is no different than what is expected of people in the church, both male and female. All right? Hebrews 13 tells us all, obey our leaders. You can understand that. As a senior pastor of this church, I want you to know that I am one elder among many, and there is a sense in which I submit to the elders. They hold me accountable. Sometimes they tell me what to do and what not to do, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I was kidding about that one. Um, <laughs> obey your leaders. This is, so this is not an unusual sexist demand leveled at women only, okay? I, I want you to learn, he says, with a quiet spirit, while submitting to those in authority over you, the elders of the church, given their responsibility to lead and teach. Further, point two, verse 12. I want to be very clear about this. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but again to remain with that quiet spirit. Notice how verse 11 is very clear in the Greek. Verse 11 begins with quietness, and verse 12 ends with quietness. It's called an inclusio. It's the main idea, but, but, but he, he says, this is, how I, this is how I want you to act, all right? In the gathered assembly, ladies, it includes not teaching, not exercising authority over man. Again, in the function of the gathered church, this has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. He is simply saying, I want men to lead. I want them to be the teachers and the elders. That is, I want them exercising authority. You see, verses 11 and 12 go together. I want you to receive instruction quietly, and the opposite of that would be to teach. I don't want you to do that. I want you to be in full submission. The opposite of that would be to exercise authority. don't want you to do that. He is simply saying, in the household of God, which is called the church, I expect men to assume the role or the function of teaching leadership. Okay, so like again, does this mean that a woman never speaks? No. Paul talks about women praying and singing and prophesying in 1 Corinthians 14, Colossians 3, which speaks of us speaking to, to one another in songs. Does this mean that she never teaches? Again, no. Older women are commanded to teach younger women in Titus chapter 2. All throughout the household codes, the implication is that the women teach the children. And, and we have the example also of Priscilla and Aquila. By the way, in that order, woman, man, Priscilla and Aquila, while in Ephesus, who pulled another teacher aside, a guy named Apollos, and taught him. He needed to be taught more fully, and they pulled him aside. And I have every confidence that Priscilla was involved in that, but it was not in the gathered assembly. The text says not to teach men. So women are both allowed and expected to teach other women, children. But to that end, I want to be clear, to that end, we only have men who serve as pastors and elders and teachers at Alliance in the gathered assembly. In case you're wondering why it's always me or one of my guys. Does this mean, does this mean women can't teach 
uh, can't teach or exercise authority over men in other contexts. I mean, after all, I'm, a, I'm an L.E.D. major or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teaching major. Am I going to be allowed to teach? Of course not. It's not what Paul is talking about. In his letters, he is simply encouraging, get this, godly wives to submit to their husbands in their homes and godly women to submit to godly leadership in the church, which is God's house, the household of God. He wants men to do, I want you to understand this, he wants men to do the authoritative, biblical, doctrinal, and gospel teaching in the church. Now, okay, that's kind of that's kind of hard. What's the biblical basis for this? Paul gives it to us in verses 13 and 14. And complementarians, such as myself, are quick to point out that he does not point to a cultural issue in Ephesus. He does not say, I don't want you to teach, ladies, because you're uneducated. Although that's what some say. No, I don't want you to teach, ladies, because you're teaching heresy. It's not what he says. He says, he goes back to the creation account in Genesis 2 and 3, which is transcultural or omnicultural. This is the way I created men and women to be, meaning this teaching applies at all times and all places. For, he says in verse 13, this is the reason, for it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. He simply points to the priority of Adam's creation for the responsibility for men to lead. He makes a very similar statement when he's addressing, by the way, the same issue of a woman's submission in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Okay, talking about women submitting to men in the appropriate context, wives to husbands and women to male leadership. All right, not every woman to every man. That's not what I'm saying. He says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was, crea- was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have the symbol of authority on her head. Here's the point. The order of creation points to not the supremacy or superiority of man, but simply the functional authority and headship of man. That's it. Question could be posed. Could he he have done it the other way? Could he have created created women first and made them head? Yeah, he could have. There's nothing inherently, uh, uh, nothing inherent about men that make them better. That's not the point. If you've heard that, the church has communicated that, I'm sorry. In our text, Adam was created first, then Eve. This is why men, by teaching and exercising, lead by teaching and exercising authority, and women should learn quietly in full submission. goes further, verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell in transgressions. Your fault, Eve, that's why we're in the mess we're in. It's not what he's saying. We, we, we go back to Genesis 3, and we find that Satan, through the serpent, tempted and deceived Eve. Paul is citing this as an example of what happens when a woman like Eve, leaves her God-given responsibility to submit, and what happens when a man abdicates his God-given responsibility to lead? You have to understand. A careful reading of the text in Genesis chapter 3 says that she ate the forbidden fruit while Adam was standing right there doing nothing, you big moron. She gave to her husband, and he ate 
willfully, knowingly. He wasn't deceived. Evil was. They both sinned. They were both culpable. And, and yet Paul tells us in Romans 5, it was Adam's sin that plunged all of us, all of humanity into sin because he was our head. This serves as a perfect picture of what happens when we neglect our God-given roles. This is the point. And finally, our last point, because we don't want to leave just women in transgression. <laughs> Paul gives hope for women in verse 15. Having just excited the example of what happens when men, women usurp authority and leave their God-given place of submitting to the responsible head, Paul says, but hey, it's okay, women will be preserved. Terrible translation. The word is saved, and the word in the pastoral epistles always talks about spiritual salvation. So, women who have fallen into transgression will be spiritually saved, that's good news, through the bearing of children. Whoa, what did you just say, Paul? This has caused lots of problems. It sure seems like Paul is saying, hey, women, you're kind of messed up here, but that's not a problem. You'll be saved through works, specifically the work of having a baby. That's a problem on a number of different levels. It's not what he is saying. Now, some have thought that this is speaking specifically about Eve, and it is. Hey, Eve, you fell into transgression, but you'll be saved by bearing children and who will bear children, who will bear who will bear the child, Jesus, who will save all transgressors from their sin. That, that's possible, and it's amazing the number of commentators who point to that as a possibility. I think, and more think, that he's saying, listen, ladies, women will be saved. Notice the end of the verse. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-restraint. This is not unusual for Paul. He says this over and over. You will be saved if you prove the reality of your faith by continuing on. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. And we prove the reality of our faith by continuing. Okay, we get that. But there is still this bearing children thing. Okay, he says you will be saved through faith. That's what he's saying, like everyone else. In proof of that faith, listen very carefully, is assuming the good and right role that God has given women can be summed up in bearing children. It's not saying the only way you can be saved is by having a baby. We know lots of godly women who have not had children. That's not, not the point. You see, the false teachers were forbidding marriage. They were likely forbidding sex. don't know if you know that, but it's necessary for having babies. Paul said, no, that goes against God's plan for the planet. Men and women marry, and women have children to propagate the human race. This then becomes a symbol of her submission to God's plan for them, and they will prove their salvation by being godly women, fulfilling their roles in love and holiness with self-restraint. Kind of interesting. That's the same word they talked about earlier when he said, I want them to adorn themselves in modesty and discretion or discreetly. That's the same word. This seems to be the problem. They have thrown off self-restraint as evidenced by their immodest and indiscreet dress and usurping roles of teaching and authority that were not theirs, that were given to men. 
Wasn't that fun? There is so much more that could be said about this. If you want more, I have 19 books in my library that you are welcome to read. By the way, I'll point out, uh, they're not all on one side. I have some on each side. Here, here's the point. God expects godly men to lead, and that's what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks when we talk about the qualifications of elders. And He expects women to fulfill their complementary functions as wives and women who respectfully submit to appropriate governing authority. Let me pray for us. So, Father, um, like last week, an awful lot of this sounds awfully counter-cultural, but if we stop and think about it, um, Christianity is counter-cultural. And You are the one who created us fully in Your image, but You created us male and female, and the Scripture is replete with teaching about complementary roles and functions and responsibilities. And I pray that my sisters and my brothers would hear the teaching that way, simply a matter of function, responsibility before You, and help us to fill that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.